very first touch point at Kinetics was a mind-blowing conversation with Dr. Brienne Everett. And she said to me, you know what? There's someone else I need to introduce you to. Our head of biomechanics, PhD candidate, Sam Blades. Sam is the Senior Director of Applied Science and Research for Kinetics, but he's more than that. Sam is the curator, authenticator, and steward of the scientific bar we hold very high inside of this company. In essence, if Kinetics provides a measure, the users can be sure that this isn't a guess, this isn't a general overview of performance, but it's scientifically correct. That's the essence of Sam Blades. Sam has a rich history of working with Olympic level athletes through to a variety of technology companies, inclusive of our sister company, Orpix. Sam's work throughout his PhD was instrumental in providing systems, metrics, and data that have undoubtedly changed lives. We have a great chat here on somewhat of a dry science known as biomechanics, but listen closely. You'll hear why this is important to anybody wanting to move in their world a little bit better. Hey, if you're enjoying the podcast series, consider subscribing, rating, and sharing this show. Now, let's chat with Sam. Sam, I think I've told you this a couple of times, and I'll say it again. You were instrumental for me to join Kinetics. It was really the discussion, one of the early phase discussions we had where I understood your premise, how you were holding such a tight scientific line for the company and why these measurements were important. But I want to dive back a little bit into your background on something I've learned about you over the course of the last 18 months. You're a sailor. Tell me about sailing, because every time I talk to a biomechanist, there's some kind of ground-based interaction. But you love being on the water. Tell me about that. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Sailing is probably one of the worst decisions I ever made. Um, <laughs> financially, it's it's ridiculous. The time commitment is massive. Um, it's probably just a it's a family thing. So yeah, my dad loved sailing. Uh, mm. My grandmother actually owned a marina in a very small town on on Vancouver Island and up in uh, Cowichan Bay, and. Mm. Yeah, there's something quite nice about the look of boats, the feel of boats, and we would we would hang out on the dock. So me and my brothers, we would lay on our stomachs and we would fish off the dock with just a just a spool of fishing line, and and uh, we'd catch these bullheads. Oh, wow. And then uh, I, you know, this wasn't that long ago. This was so I actually worked with sailing. That was one of the sports I did some yeah. um, biomechanics for. It was the uh, parasailing program. But my parents took us on a trip, and I had one of these you know kind of idyllic experiences where. I wasn't responsible for the boat. You know, I was just sitting in the front with my feet in the water, feeling the wind. And I was like, this is great. So then naively I bought a boat and that was like the first trip you do on your own, you realize it's a terrifying experience when you're the one responsible for everyone's right. safety, not crashing the boat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Wow. 
Incredible. Yeah. yeah. So I often use the sailing analogy when I talk to people who are planning for like a team who's planning a session relative to or a week long or a month long or a season long kind of program. One of the funny things we often talk about, and I use this analogy quite a bit, I say, guys, this has got to, it's a lot like sailing. I said, you know, if you take off from the port of Los Angeles and try to sail to Honolulu, you just can't set the compass and go. There are inbound waves and, and resistance. There are wind shifts all the time. And having that ability to pivot from a programming standpoint, I often use sailing as a, as a metaphor for that. Do you find that kind of the same? Tell us about your experience with sailing and, and with an Olympic team. How did that come about? How did you dive into to that area? So when I work for the Canadian Sport Institute, I my job was doing like applied biomechanics. Right. And so typically how it works, they kind of just assign you different sports. Mm. And because I had some exposure to sailing in the past growing up, that there was a bit of a fit there. So we did some work with the parasailing program. And you know, you're right, like sailing is kind of, uh, it's a fascinating sport. It, mm -hmm. If you talk to people who are actively doing it, they'll sort of say, you know, it's, it's a massively mental, um, so you're fighting exposure because you're just, you're out on the water for so long, you have to maintain focus. But really, you know, I, I think at the time, there weren't a lot of people doing biomechanics or, or more kind of technical analysis with right. with the sports. So I was able to kind of bring a fresh set of eyes to the sport and, yeah. and try some new things. So <laughs> we did some really cool stuff. Like we used high frequency GPS sensors, which mm. I would stream the data from the sensors to me in the coach boat, in the, in the motorboat. Right. And I would film them from the back so we could see the entire boat. We could also see the trim of the sail. Mm. Uh, and then the coach would yell different things that he wanted the crew to do in terms of trimming the sails or, or adjusting their line. And we would yeah. look at the effect on speed. And then after the fact, I would actually overlay all this time series data onto the video so they could see. Right. Another example is we would look at like when they when they had to tack, we would look at how quickly they were able to get their boat speed back up. So we could film right. the whole process and we could monitor the boat speed. And then as the boat speed came back up, we would sort of look at that interval of time and see how efficient their attack was. Yeah, so really interesting. So the GPS uh, tech you were using, having used it in uh, some rowing, not sailing, but I worked with uh, the University of Washington and they wanted to use uh, catapult GPS sensors. And I said, well, okay, where do you want to put them? Well, we want to put them on the bow of the boat. I said, well, how important is what the rowers do to the boat? Well, it's critical. Well, let's put them on them as well, right? So he's tried to get the human implement interaction kind of determined, you know, mathematically and, and to see what was having an effect on what. But it was really interesting. The technology was probably the best that was available at the time, but it brings into play a really good question. And I think a lot of biomechanists are going down this path now, sport technology. How do you pick a technology for an elite team? I mean, what is your thought process if you're looking at tech and you're trying to understand from the ground up, do you start with what are the key performance indicators and kind of reverse engineer to find the technology? Or do you look at emerging technologies and say that could be applicable? Yeah, I think, you know, early on in my career anyway, it was very much the latter approach. Like, you know, we just kind of looked at what was available. Yeah. So it was a little less strategic in terms of the implementation and, and really looking at what was available, you know, 
getting comfortable with the tech and then seeing how it could help us, you know, design our feedback scheduling regiment and, and fit in with what we're doing from a testing perspective. But, you know, from a selection perspective, I, honestly, number one to me nowadays is pragmatics. So if the tech itself is is cumbersome, difficult to use, unreliable, the batteries fail, you just can't be in that position. You know, I would far rather work with a super consistent, super reliable tech that has some shortcomings. Maybe there's some things that it doesn't measure or any other number of things, but but really, you know, that, that reliability piece, um, if it's super pragmatic, easy to use, that that gets you the biggest wins. You know, the last thing you want is a coach getting pissed off. And, and they're, they're mm-hmm. usually the reluctant ones. You know, yeah. you, you don't have to keep, convince the high performance directors, you don't have to convince the other sports scientists that you're working with about right. the use of tech. It's usually a coach who's going to be a bit reluctant. Yeah. And they yeah. gotta know you're not wasting their time. Yeah. You know, they gotta be confident that that this is going to be a value add. So that was kind of the second thing that I would say like if this tech should improve coach productivity, right? Mm-hmm. Like if the tech mm-hmm. I'm using actually makes the coach's life easier, that's an absolute win. So you know, is it pragmatic, easy to use? Does it improve coach productivity? And then, you know, does it meet the relative degree of accuracy? So right. if you're working with really junior and novice athletes, the difference from one athlete to the next is is huge. You've got mm. a lot of variability across the spread. Yeah. And as you get more and more elite, the differences get smaller and smaller and smaller. And so the required degree of accuracy that you need goes up and up and up yeah and if you can't differentiate between your performers then ultimately everything you're trying to measure gets lost in measurement error and so you know it's another super important factor no it's incredible that you mention even the coach productivity part of the equation because i think in most tech decision making that happens with elite teams around the world that have been exposed to i mean we've got this the smart ones have this athlete-centric model, which the coach interplay is at the technical, tactical, and then strategic level. And we would always, as sports scientists, turn around and state, you know, it's that intervention. You know, what is the data set and is it creating an intervention? But never, I think, has anyone put it into the regards in terms of the basically the economy of the coach. You know, is this making his decision-making process sharper, faster, and simpler? And, you know, you're right, 100%, the most threatened by tech are coaches, and it's generally because they didn't grow up with it, right? I mean, you'd get those uh, statements all the time. As soon as I would be introducing technology, I would wait, and almost like in the NFL and the NBA, to a man, a head coach would say, well, back in my day, and I was like, okay, get ready. Here it comes. You know, we get, we've got to get past this tech hurdle. Did you find that a lot like at the Olympic level, uh, working with athletes there and their coaches? Was there still a reluctance? Was that uh, was that still um, a major issue? I mean, it, it definitely varied coach to coach. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think the good ones understood the, the potential um, and were sort of open-minded to it. I think yeah. where... Where, where coaches struggled as they recognized that, you know, sort of their place, their, their essential value was still at that coach's eye. Yeah. And, and they wanted to be the one to, you know, uh, interpret the data and, and apply um, the, the things that they wanted athletes to do differently from a technique standpoint. And they felt like right. this was their kind of place in, 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 
in their sport environment, like mm. the ability to look at an athlete and say, okay, you need to change these things to improve. Right. And actually, that was something I learned that was so important is that you never tried to replace that process. So mm. when, when I worked really well with coaches, what I would do is, is take all the measurements, interpret the data, and then we had kind of a, a process where I would go through it with the coach very quickly. We would see what we were mm. seeing. Um, and then the coach would reframe the data such that the athletes would interpret it in the way that the coach wanted them to achieve right. that end. So, right. you know, instead of me saying, hey, you, you know, you're you're losing five degrees of, of catch angles of the oars going in, you know, yeah. uh, too late into the water, the coach would have a different kind of way of stating that. Yeah. And so really all I was doing was enabling him to see things that he couldn't visually see. I mean, we right. were measuring, you know, forces and gate angles and you might have an incredible coach's eye, but ultimately you cannot see those yeah. things. And so, so really I was sort of making the invisible visible to him and then yeah. pass that information along. And then as the relationship grew, you know, ultimately he didn't feel the need to filter everything, mm. trusted me, you know, to, to kind of relay that information as a coach would. On average, how long did that take? I mean, coach trust is something that is, I think, you know, it's kind of ongoing and it's something that's earned, right? You don't automatically get it out of the gate. How long does that take um, when you're working with a coach? Yeah, so that earned bit, I think, is really important. <laughs> you know, I, I spent a lot of time out in, in the pouring rain, in the freezing cold, <laughs> you know, kind of earning that respect. And, and yeah. you know, you know this, I know this, each sport has their own sport culture. Oh, yeah. And... If you come in guns blazing, thinking you're going to change the landscape of the culture, you know, that's it. You'll be done with that sport so fast. Yeah. yeah. You know, I. it takes a long time to learn a sport. It takes a long time to learn the subtleties of the biomechanics, mm. you know, what's at play. And then and then that culture piece, and I, you know, that's minimum a season, right? Yeah. And so, you know, if, if I was talking to like a junior biomechanist or somebody who's kind of new in their career, my advice yeah. would be like, start simple and and do do the basics and do the basics really really well yeah. and and learn as much as you can about the sport the sport culture build that relationship of trust with the coach and then start to introduce new things there will be things i think that you see early on that you think hey you know here's an opportunity and that and that's really what you're hunting for is is these situations where maybe something's being missed yeah. you know yeah, um, like your idea of measuring the athletes relative to the motion of the boat, mm. and maybe there's an opportunity here. But yeah. you you definitely have to approach these things cautiously. Yeah, no doubt. And we're always looking for insight, right? I mean, we're trying to find something that is a potential uncoupling of a rate limiting factor for that athlete's performance, or we're looking at it to say, hey, you know what? If this was structured a little bit differently, or your teaching or your cueing mechanism emphasized this aspect based upon the data, I think that's where coaches go, ah, okay, I now understand what you're saying. Because look, for the most part, those coaches are experienced athletes who have transcended as an athlete going into the sport, right? And they, not all of them, very, very few of them, probably less than 1% I've dealt with, have any uh, physical system sciences or any physical literacy um, outside of what they felt as a coach in their sport. So 
Yeah, I see that a lot, mate. And uh, look, I think you've nailed um, you nailed it, Sam. Yet again, you change change my optic on some things. I think that is the most important aspect. I always talk about trying to get frictionless technology, which we are working on and building at Kinetics, right? But on the flip side, insight is only as good as the way that coach is going to package it, put it into their language that's accepted by the athletes and the culture within the organization. But you're 100% right on there, mate. But let's let's shift tack here. Let's, let's use a sailing term, right? Let's tack. <laughs> let's go into biomechanics. Let's talk about it. So for our listeners, like I've always looked at biomechanics as the difficulty of three principles, mathematics, physics, and then you add this chaotic human system <laughs> into the middle of that, right? And somewhere emerges biomechanics. How do you explain it? Well, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good explanation right there. I mean, really, you know, that's the application of physics to the human system and the human system yeah. as it's interacting with other objects. You know, it's it's a massive, massive field. <laughs> you start to search the journals. We, you know, sport kind of dominates. I think what the general public thinks about biomechanics, but it could be, yeah. you know, the strength of an, an artery relative to the pressure of blood flow. And there's people who've done right. these very you know, discrete studies looking at that arterial wall strength. And, and the, there's just a massive, massive breadth of, of topics that are covered. Mm. But um, yeah, absolutely, from my perspective, you know, that intersection of, of, of physics, which is ultimately math, and then and then the human body and its interaction with the, the environment that it's in or the objects in its environment. And obviously, you know, physics is the way that we define mm. and understand those interactions so yeah there's no way to do any kind of investigation but that's you know without physics as as the the method of understanding those interactions yeah i mean it was inc- it was critical for me to understand vectors when i was working with baseball athletes and especially pitchers i wanted to understand the vectors in which their kinematic structure worked so that they could elicit um, force on the baseball so that they could throw that baseball at higher velocities. So I had to kind of go back and relearn some physics. And this is, Jesus, as early as 2007. I was going back going, now, what was that I fell asleep on during physics in class again? Go back and learn and understand the vectors, then triangulate to understand the principles that were being applied up the kinematic chain. And what struck me there, Sam, the most was how that is not a consistent application across sports specifically, and I'll speak to my purview, in the United States. There's a hell of a lot of strength and conditioning coaches and a lot done in this realm of strength and conditioning that talks about a term between exercises in the gym and what happens on the field, and they call it transfer, right? We hope, I've heard so many coaches say to me, we hope that frontal plane squat transfers to force production in the baseball pitcher. And if I put the neurological system at the top of the hierarchy for me in understanding athlete movement, other than catchers who squat, other than, um, you know, I think power lifters, I mean, most of this science of strength and conditioning in the United States kind of models Olympic lifting and tries to transfer it backwards. Have you seen the same thing? Do you see it in Canada as well? Yeah, uh, there, there's a lot to kind of unpack in what you said there. So hmm. for sure, there, there's among strength conditioning coaches, I think there's a very heavy uh, 
dominance of the Olympic lifting and and right. I think I think they feel very comfortable with those exercises in terms of the results of 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 their ability to affect human movement and and they tend to not train specificity so mm. the idea that if there's a sport specific motion that should be trained by the coach you know in the sport environment right. if you're a diver you're training those specificities in that environment and the job of the strength conditioning coach is really robustness so you're trying to increase the potential of the athlete explosive mm. power yeah um you know peak peak force or peak strength and and really injury prevention so mm. you know are, are you strong in all ranges of motion that you could be exposed to so that you're right. sort of pr- injury proof but yeah that being said so the you know a lot of the strength conditioning coaches certainly that i worked with you know were super bright and you know a lot of them had phds and they do it they're doing a lot of testing nowadays mm. with different measurement systems you know force plates are becoming common now but then drawing parallels or, or doing, you know, asking the scientific question mm. is what we're measuring in the gym mm. actually transferring. So this is, you know, where you're going, yeah. actually transferring to what we're seeing on the field. Yeah. And, and if not, why is there a discrepancy? Mm. And, and as you say, just because somebody has, you know, pushed big numbers in the gym does not necessarily mean that, you know, yeah. out in the actual field of play that they have that same, yeah. same capacity. You know, one of the early um, tech jobs I got assigned was somebody asked me, well, how can I measure uh, scrum force? Oh, yeah. This was rugby. Yep. <laughs> I have no idea. So, <laughs> you know, I thought about it for a while. Um, and what we ended up doing was using, uh, so they have the scrum machine that they, they hit their shoulders yeah. with. And then we built a, a, a tray, a massive plastic tray, and, and we milled some some grooves in it and, and had something yeah. for their feet to connect to and then we yeah. put load cells in a chain between this thing that their feet slid on and the, yeah. the scrum machine so we could sort of give them a command like you know hit and then measure um, rate of force development and peak force and then try yeah. to relate it back to to what we're actually seeing from the uh, yeah that would have been really interesting and i think you know sorry for the sidebar for our listeners but the time from impact to the consistency, the you know consistency of that push, I think that's the big thing in the scrum, right? Is trying to gain geographical advantage on the pitch, so you can, can get that ball out. But hit is normally react back and then go again, right? So I think those guys who are good in the scrum actually hit and just keep driving, like they're driving through a brick wall. But mate, it's really interesting, you know, to to have this discussion with you around. Um, uh, coaching strength and conditioning because you know it's it's like the sport I worked in, in in baseball I would have coaches always saying to me well if he's bigger and stronger that means he must be more resilient to injury and it also means he'll be better at his sport and I said well if that's the case guys why aren't you scouting uh, your athletes down at Gold's Gym just go to Gold's Gym Venice get those biggest guys and put them on the mound and see what they do if that's your correlation and that tended to end it end a lot of discussions and a lot of arguments right there but it's, it's It's really interesting, but mate, one of the things that became evident to me in talking to you for the first time and and talking to our CEO, Brianne Everett, was the the importance of foot-ground interaction. Why is it important? You know, it's funny you talk about physics and biomechanics Mm. and strength and conditioning and, and, and really what we're talking about, this sort of effective application of force. Mm. And so throughout the course of, of things that I've worked on and, and, 
been a part of designing and, and, and the testing. I and mean, a lot of things have, have actually boiled back down to that single place of interaction. And so, right. you know, even after the, a while back when we were talking about the definition of biomechanics and mm. I said, you know, interaction between the human body and an object. Yeah. If you look at, I'll say, sort of terrestrial sports, the majority of our sports are, are actually happening at these foot ground interactions. And it's just it's just the way we're set up. I mean, obviously there are exceptions, climbing, swimming, um, yeah, where yeah. where propulsion is happening through other parts of the body, but but ultimately a huge majority of our sports happen um, through these foot ground interactions, and that's really how we're we're built, right? You know, right. we're we're designed for it, right? And so if you think yeah. about the things that you want to measure, you want to capture these these interactions because ultimately they determine both. Um, how you move, how you mm. how you're propulsive, and and potentially how you might get injured. Right. And so that that you know we say that the foot is the endpoint effector for human movement, mm. and it and it's really because that's where all the forces are being transferred. So right. yeah, for for me anyway, it's it's a pr- of primary importance, right? And so you know, as a biomechanist, we spend a great deal of time trying to measure these forces right and you know if you go to any biomechanics lab the one piece of equipment they are guaranteed to have will be an in-ground force plate yeah and if they're lucky they have multiple force plates and if they're really lucky they even have force instrumented treadmills and all of that equipment costing hundreds of thousands of dollars is all designed to measure these foot ground interactions and it's all the issue you have and it's all that's the that's it Yeah. yeah So, you know, while there's just been, you know, there, there's a plethora of papers who have done, you know, incredible investigations looking at these um, ground reaction forces and, and foot ground interactions using force plates, that, that what you just said is kind of the primary issue. There, there seems to be a bit of a disconnect between what we're measuring, what we're understanding about the human body mm. from these laboratory-based measurements, and then what we're still finding out is happening out in the real world, like, right. you know, injury rates. Um, and so, you know, why the disconnect? And I think primarily this has to do with the fact that, you know, we're, we're missing out on on measuring um, foot ground interactions yeah. in, in a realistic and authentic way in, in the training and competition environments. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible, right? So not only is there force, we're getting that data now, we're starting to aggregate some of that data at Kinetics, looking at real-world environments on real-world athletes and starting to understand like changes in footwear, changes in terrain, what the impact of those things are uh, internally. We're really starting to unpack, I think, a whole portfolio of information that's never really been accrued before or just been accrued minimally and invasively. So to be able to have that data set and to be able to get into it and mine it, I know one of the areas you were starting to look at and look closely, especially for, say, I don't want to say non-running sports, but non-endurance sports is this measure of, say, force impulse. Explain that to me, Sam, and, and why do you think that's important as well? Sure. So, you know, you you can look at force and, and really that's, you know, the magnitude of an interaction between two objects. So in this case, certainly we're talking about the human body and the ground, but that force, you know, happens in a single point in time. Mm. And, and in reality, force actually happens over time, right? So, right. so it's happening 
um, throughout throughout a consistent period of time. So every time your foot hits the ground, it's not instantaneously on and off the ground. It's mm. on the ground for you know 250 milliseconds, for right. example. Right. And so what impulse is is really the representation of force over a period of time. So you can kind of think of it like the way you get the area of a rectangle. If you got the area, you need both things. You need the width and the height. Right. So, so you can think about the magnitude of force and the time over which it's it's applied. Right. And, and if you multiply the two, you'd get the area. And so for us, impulse, that's that area under that force time curve. And that actually determines the net magnitude of the interaction, right? right? Because it doesn't occur in that single point in time. It occurs over the time course. Right. So right. if you want to look at, at the transfer momentum between objects, you're actually looking at at the impulse. So mm. to go back to your pitcher example, mm. what what the pitcher is trying to do, and if you look at that action, it, it's bizarre to watch. Yeah. Right? All yeah. this distorted shoulder and yeah. um and Full distorted rotation. thinking. Let's start there. Yeah. It's just distorted thinking to go into that sport in the beginning. But anyway. Yeah. And and ultimately what they're trying to do is is have maximum force application yeah. over the longest period of time. Right. Because that's what determines the release velocity of the ball. And that's what makes for the fast pitch. Mm. Um, if they were trying to do it over a short period of time, they'd have to produce an incredible amount of force. Forces really mm. much higher than the human body can handle for right. for that duration. So, yeah, impulse is massively important, and really, it kind of doesn't make sense to talk about force without, without considering yeah. the force time over which it's being applied. Yeah, it's really interesting. So, as you know, last week I was down at um, P3 in Atlanta with Dr. Marcus Elliott and his team of biomechanists, who have tested about I think the number is sixty four percent of all NBA athletes right now, and they were showing me their data relative to force and force impulse. But what they've been able to do is connect that back to a lot of the KPIs relative to the sport. And they're looking at these millisecond interactions and, and what those force impulse markers are like against a specific event, whether it's jump height, speed, you name it. You know, they're kind of they're building this portfolio of information together just so that they can potentially discriminate between one athlete or another and quantify his risk potentially of injury. So force impulse, I know to that point, is a currency that's playing a transaction point in projection. So yeah, we're certainly starting to see like, I think P3s in, in, as, in terms of groups in North America, they're way ahead. And um, they're quantifying their, their existence within the framework of the NBA today. But there's very few, I think, um, um, outside of academia that have really looked at this and unpacked it and used it in a methodology that the average consumer can understand. It's like um, like doing the Peloton ride I was on this morning. I was looking at you know power, you know, and I'm looking at my cycling power, and, I, and I'm trying to understand how that potentially could correlate to running power. But a lot of that is going to break down into potentially this singular metric, right? I mean, it's it's there's going to be that's going to be a critical part of the discussion. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a few interesting things that you mentioned there. So, you know, one is that, you know, so we can talk about force and we can talk about force impulse, but ultimately yeah. we also need to talk about motion, sort of what we call kinematics. And if you're building a tech, mm -hmm. you, you want something that can measure both. So we talked about the fact that there's force plates yeah. in every biomechanics lab. There's also yeah. going to be motion capture, right? And that's yeah. those retroreflective yeah. balls, used little silver balls and and 
Yeah. What does that do? Well, it allows biomechanists to track joint movements throughout three-dimensional space. And ultimately, what you're looking at is the combination of the two. Yeah. So for us at Kinetics, you know, it's super important that we had really high accurate um, motion sensors so that we can mm -hmm. track completely the motion of the foot in combination with those foot ground interactions. So, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, um, knowing how, how fast you're moving but in, in a race course, but not knowing where you are in the race, you know, you, you need to, you need to kind of pin something, uh, to a specific yeah. place. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, you, you lack that context. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Let me, let me jump back though to something to that you said about, yeah. about P3 there, which was that one of the things that we see over and over again is, is all these studies are done you know, in lab and, you know, you said outside of academia, of course, these studies are typically done on collegiate athletes. Yeah. So there's actually very few people collecting data oh. on elite athletes. On, on elite so, or real world, right? I mean, and that's the thing. Yeah. Like, look at any study. We did a nine-week study on males, 18 to 22. Hello. Yeah. yeah. That was somebody's thesis, right? Yeah. And they're all, you know, volunteers. Yeah. There may be uh, collegiate level or, or just amateur athletes. Or typically, you know, they're the friends of the, yeah. the researcher. You know, they called up their buddies. Hey, I'm doing a study. Can you come in? Yeah. And so while that information is useful, we do have a bit of a black hole around mm. elite athletes and, yep. and the testing of them. So, yeah. you know, Marcus testing all of those guys. They developed this, this battery of information. You know, things like how do you quantify an acceptable discrepancy between peak forces in, in, in left versus right side? Yeah, right. You know, what's an acceptable bandwidth there? Yeah. Where, where should you think, okay, this is, this is an issue and I want to address it. Um, you know, building up that kind of normative data set that is population specific is really, really important, I think. Yeah, no, 100%. It's not only left and right side of the body. It's maybe left and right side of the foot. How does that foot interact, right? Because um, there could be variability. And I would I would probably merit, and I haven't looked at this data, Sam, but I probably merit that there is, um, yeah, there's, there's leg dominance variability, whether that's more time, less time. I don't know. Don't know what that answer is. But it gives us the opportunity to future project here. Do you see a point in time where the data coming off groups like P3, the stuff we're grabbing at Kinetics, that portfolio of real-world information. Do you see a point in time where shoe design will be less about fashion, more about function, but more importantly, about individual function? Do you see that coming? Yeah, yeah, 100%. So, so I, think, I think the world is headed towards personalization, personalization yeah. of your data, personalization of your... <laughs> Your news feed, I mean, we've had it yeah. that way yeah. already in the digital world. And then yeah. now the technology has gotten there where where we can start to have, instead of this idea that, you know, you kind of walk into a store and you, you pick this one thing and, and mm. hope that it works for you. Mm. Rather, we have the opportunity to to iterate on, on construction and manufacturing techniques so that you're getting something which is designed for you. Right. your body, how you move, how you interact with the world. And I think footwear is really the perfect place to start with all of this. Mm. Um, right. Because a lot of the footwear stuff, you know, if you look at the research on it, 
a lot of it's been kind of inconclusive. Oh, yeah. um, and yeah. and a lot of it does come down to kind of personal preference. Like there will be these groups where, where a new design feature will work for them and, and other groups where it didn't. Yeah. You can imagine a world where something like our technology is providing continuous pressure and, and foot motion data mm. and that is getting consumed and iterated on so that your footwear evolves with you progressively and it constantly is yeah. is um, being updated to give you the best fit performance you know reduction of injury uh, you right. know I'm in a phase I'm doing a ton of running right now and you know it would be really cool if, if my footwear kind of evolved uh, yeah. along with with the changing activities that I'm doing. Well, changing activities and also your evolution as a runner because you're going to have, what, midsole decay potentially in the type of shoe that you're wearing and then take it back to another level like the sport I was in, you know, the sports I've worked in, in in baseball and and US football, cleated design was always really interesting to me as well. I used to state the best tool I had in the weight room for a guy returning from injury, especially lower extremity injury, was a Dremel. Because what I would do, I'd cut these really stiff soles where the foot needed to bend and then refill them. It would basically ruin the shoe. It would give the guy maybe two weeks out of a shoe instead of half a season. But, I mean, the shoe was so poorly designed, it was somewhat restrictive of, say, an Achilles um, return to play or a ankle stability return to play. There were so many faults within the design of the shoe versus how we wanted the foot and ground to interact. So I was always trying to cut something open, put it back on the app. And I'd say to him, boy, mate, I hope you've got six pair of these because I'm going to butcher about five of them trying to figure out where the right places you for you to be in return to play. So that generated a thought. Those were things I was doing back in 2012. And I started, you know, it certainly came to mind when uh, coming on board at Kinetics as this opportunity not only to almost have that subscription model for shoes based upon what's happening with your foot and your foot ground interactions and our technology having that ability to even send you a a text message and say hey Sam looks like you're doing more trail running now than you are flat ground running or track running for that reason we're going to recommend a, a a sole that is maybe a little bit more elevated in the heel for a little bit more ground force compression there are so many dynamics that we could get into for individualization of footwear, I think that is going to be a significant part of our future development here, of which you'll be right in the, like you're right in the middle of everything. You're going to be right in the middle of that too. And that's going to be, you know, I want us to be able to look back at a point in time. Gee, remember when shoes were always a little bit uncomfortable and that just is gone now, right? I mean, having that ability, I think is, um, is awesome. And, uh, I think it'll be something we get to too, and, and then transferring that to your point to the digital economy, to the to the metaverse, right? Does Sam walking in the real world look the same as Sam walking in the metaverse, right? When he's in that metaverse world, I think we've got a portal to create that as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the every footwear manufacturer, you know, who's making sport athletic footwear, they have fantastic mm. researchers and, yeah. and fantastic research facilities. Oh, yeah. And if you hear them speak, they'll talk about making interventions. So an intervention being maybe it's a new design feature. Yeah. Ultimately what's missing is this ability to assess the intervention relative to the quantification of, of performance and those foot ground interactions. 
and continuously improve. So, mm-hmm. you know, there you were dremeling away, but at the end of the day, you, you know, you had to have this conversation with an athlete and say, hey, yeah. how does that feel? Yeah. And athletes are phenomenally good at knowing to have a, a very yeah. good sense of, of, of that feel. Oh, yeah. It's really nice to actually marry that, that qualitative feedback with the quantitative feedback. Oh, critical. And I think, yeah. you know, another thing that we don't know is the degradation of performance. So, so we yeah. do know in theory that shoes all wear out and, and there's some sort of cliff that the, the, the protective mechanisms of the footwear, you know, yeah. start to decay. And, and most people just tend to run right through that. They're not the best mm. about, mm. um, you know, throwing out their old shoes and getting new ones, but it certainly would be, you know, doable today to, to allow people to measure that and, and know when their footwear has had a sudden change in performance and that should throw a flag to replace it. And, and I think, you know, that's really just, as you say, just scratching the, yeah. the surface in terms of the amount of things that we can start to measure and provide uh, feedback on. Yeah. Just, just from a footwear performance um, standpoint. So, you know, to that end, we actually have a project where we're looking at cleat performance and we're, we're taking in lab measurements and developing an injury risk score and, and yeah. then using that injury risk score to drive cleat design. So we're doing a fully yep. customizable cleat design um, and then testing how that affects people out in the, the real world. Yeah. And then you, you know, you also mentioned this metaverse interaction so the yep. idea that, hey, how I move in the real world could could be mirrored. We actually have another project um, that that we're trying to kick off just in January that would start to do that investigation. So how accurately can we predict and model lower body and potentially even whole body movement from purely from from two things, sort of known activity and then from our foot data? Yeah. As I mentioned when we started um, our podcast, I said, Sam, you were instrumental in me coming on board at Kinetics because of the scientific bar that you have held consistent with this product to make sure that we aren't guessing, we aren't throwing stuff out that we think, ah, yeah, I think if there was a sign on the wall of your office, it would be good enough, isn't, right? That's kind of what I get from you uh, quite a bit, but you've been instrumental in like like unpacking these projects, you've been instrumental in recruiting and building this amazing sports science and applied research team at Kinetics. Um, you know, it's it's really interesting when you put all those minds together, this portfolio of kind of intellectual brilliance in trying to solve problems that a lot of our athletes don't even know they have. So you're bringing people in to this to this team. How do you make the decision on who's in, who's out? Like how many applications did you have for a the, one of the recent biomechanist roles that came in? How many applicants did we have for that role? Yeah, I mean, considering it's a very kind of niche skill set, I was yeah. I was shocked and amazed at the um, uh, number of applicants we get. I think it was 50 yeah. plus. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was not an easy process to decide for me. I care quite a bit about science communication mm. and, and, and so, you know, you sort of said like, <laughs> um, you're right. You know, it's very easy to be somebody who, who just says, yeah, we can measure that, crank out a metric and, and start to produce it. Right. 
you have to have that scientific integrity. Mm. Um, so, so for sure, that was something I was looking for in everyone that, you know, they had experience doing validation work and, and, and knew the statistics and, and, and really proper methodology behind how you validate a metric and, and, and can be certain so that when you're saying, hey, we're measuring running power, for example, we, we're truly measuring it in, in a valid way. But then their ability to communicate. So, you know, there's a lot of people who work in science and engineering who, who, who struggle, I think, with that communication piece. Mm. And, and it's not because they don't understand things, but I think, it, you know, science communication is a, is a far more core skill for biomechanists than many people acknowledge. Right. And your ability to, to understand what it is you're measuring, why you're measuring it, and being able to explain that in, in sort of layman's terms is just such a mm. hugely important skill. Well, it's huge. Yeah, and, and yeah. biomechanics to me is it's this, this <laughs> I guess I use a, a term that's kind of um, fitting here, ground truth. Right, it's very measurable. We can see the impact of the human musculoskeletal system against its environment and have measures around it and understand joint by joint interactions kinematically. Whereas physiology, you know, kind of juries out there a little bit, right? Because is it heart rate? Is it uh, cardiac volume? Uh, is it cellular uptake? Is it mitochondrial adaptation? What is it? Right. There's so many factors, I think, when we're looking at the physiological system. Um, forget the psychological system and our limited understanding of neurology. Right. You can put those all in a bucket and go, yeah, gray area. But there seems to be more truth in biomechanics. So to that reason, I think the, the selection process that you go through relative to commu communication um, feels right on target. Yeah. So, so, you know, that, that played a big role and, um, you know, we certainly got lucky, uh, just with, with the kind of, um, you know, quality of the applicants that we got. Yeah. And, you know, there's a, there's a new world right now in terms of AI machine learning and yeah, yeah, it, it's just such an important skill set. So that was also kind of on our, our list. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's a very powerful tool that you have to be extremely careful. It's very yeah. easy to, to say, oh, we made an AI-based metric that can measure X, Y, and Z. Um, yeah. You know, those validation pieces have to be there. You have to consider the population base by which you develop the training and test yep. data sets for machine learning. And right. we knew, you know, we're going to be in a situation where we're going to be banking mass volumes of, of data and we stand to be able to to draw phenomenal inferences from this data set. Yeah. So, yeah, some you know people who have that that capacity to to analyze, build, experiment, and and derive algorithms ultimately from that data set was hugely important to us because yeah, you know, as you said, there are things that we're going to be able to measure that we currently aren't even thinking of yet. Mm. Uh, so so we're at this kind of approach where we say, well. We'll collect it all. We'll store it all. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. we can start to go back and be like, hang on a second. We're starting to notice yeah. these trends. Yes. We have we have the the sample by sample data from 
from 12 months ago from this person. So what can yeah. we draw? Yeah, really cool. And I think that aggregate kind of database of information, I think is going to be critical. I think too, as we look over time to um, something you and I have discussed is the need to involve exercise physiology, the need to involve even potentially, you know, longer term, um, if we're trying to understand and unpack an athlete's rate limitations relative to a performance aspect there's going to be some psychology there's going to be some other factors in there that we need to look at in totality so it really is um, testimony to kinetics to budget heavily and enable this type of development going on i've never seen it like um in in a former life as a director of education for cybex um i was a one-man show I'd have to go outside and rally and try to pull in biomechanists when I needed them uh, for some uh, equipment level design. But to have the commitment um, that we're making at Kinetics to execute around this, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, it's um, it's got to be an exciting place for you to be today. Yeah, it's super exciting. And, uh, you know, for me, it was definitely, you know, the one man show for a bit there as we were building <laughs> yeah. things up. And, and no, I, you know, I've been phenomenally lucky and, and very well supported. And as we're building out our team, it, you know, it just feels like uh, an absolute exponential amount of yeah. capacity for what we can do. And as you said, the next piece really, so, you know, it was, it was biomechanist first. And then the next piece, you know, we really want to add to the, the research team is, is, um, somebody from the physiology side, yeah. because yeah. ultimately we can marry the two and yeah. we can start to understand, okay, we can, we can put the physiology and the human engine side into the equation. Exactly. What can we start to do? And, and then, yeah, certainly down the road, you know, there, there's opportunities for more in, in terms of exercise, um, adherence and motivation and, and all of the pieces around, uh, sports psychology that play into it. It's ultimately all of those things, the technical, the tactical, the mental, and the physical are all the, the dominant components yeah. of sport performance. And so, you know, yeah, be, being enabled so that we can build out a research team so that we can we can provide value, you know, scientifically mm. grounded value in all of those areas is, is a phenomenally fortunate situation to be in. Sam, let's talk a little bit about return to play. So we've talked a lot about kind of baselining athlete information in the real world, what that looks like. Mm -hmm. We've talked about performance at the highest output by looking at key performance indicators and their correlation to things like force and force impulse, which are going to be critical. We've talked about the team you're assembling relative to understanding what are these limitations on human movement and performance. Let's talk about an injured athlete. And the reason I bring this up, coming off knee surgery about 12 weeks ago, seeing center of pressure and symmetry for me, involved versus non-involved limb, was actually absolutely critical in my acceleration to be back to walking, running, biking, etc. So I was just looking at center of pressure. That's all I was looking at. What are the data sets you think will be compelling as we move into a return to play dynamic? You know, early on, we talked about the discrepancy between sort of lab-based measurements and, yeah. and so I'll say in the action or, or yeah. field-based sport measurements. Mm -hmm. You know, this is where I think, you know, we're at, we're at a bit of a crux in terms of measurement. People are doing it now. I think people understand that the sort of traditional physio, um, you know, pass-fail, yeah was missing something. Oh. These people are, are very bright and, and extremely yeah. well-trained. 
However, there are things they just simply can't see. So, you know, there might be some physical manipulation or they look at mobility in a joint and, and what they may be missing is this kind of what's happening from, from, from a, a, you know, muscular recruitment standpoint mm. during force production. Yeah. And so the body's very good at compensating. <laughs> and so it'll, it'll compensate for a weakness or, or maybe there's, you know, post-injury, there's, there's a kind of, um, compensating mechanism going on which is preventing proper you know full muscular firing and yeah. so the net effect may not be that easy to spot if somebody's doing let's say a counter movement jump mm. it might look fine yeah. but ultimately there's there's some discrepancy going on here and if the person is not fully recovered obviously they're at a risk of injury but also there's another potential which is that they recover using you know, poor recruitment techniques, yeah. and then they're at risk of a different injury, you know. Right, right. And so, you know, it's not it's not totally my area. I mean, I haven't spent a lot of time looking at this kind of return to play stuff, but, but certainly where I see, you know, our tech having a huge impact is in these more kind of in vivo authentic yeah. um, motion. So if somebody's actually starting to run again or jump again, the things that we can measure in a very non-invasive, you know, sort of imperceptible way allow us to have a much more valid you know assessment of, of the athletes sort of return to their natural movement yeah you know another thing that can happen is as, as people fatigue they tend to revert right back to yep. to what's happened so maybe they're good yeah. in front of their physio or their coach and they, they want to get back into the field of play so they can bang out one decent counter movement jump yeah. but what happens after they fatigue what happens when they're in a stress situation where Bingo. they're worried about getting tackled yeah and if we can if we can spot those oh. those motor patterns and 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 that's a red flag that we can throw up and say hey you know take that guy off the field bring him back in give him a little bit more uh, time to recover potentially we can we can shorten that time frame or at a minimum at least try to you know reduce the risk of recurrence and that's the biggest thing, right? Reducing the risk of reoccurrence because I would see that all the time. Is um, Like in my first year of professional baseball, I won't mention the organization, but people that know me knows who it is. We were at AAA um, with this team and we had a player, it was early stage, um, he was recovering from what they term bucketed this grade three hamstring strain, right? So he was out for about, I think six weeks was, was total. And I remember what working with the athletic trainer, we were playing in a now defunct city for AAA, Portland, Portland, Oregon, right? So we rock into Portland. I mean, at the end of a game, our athletic training room would look like a mash unit. There was blood everywhere because this field, right, was like concrete floor with the thinnest carpet on it that they called turf. And players, I mean, my God, they were just... It was like a, like I said, a mesh unit, right? There's blood everywhere. If, if you slid on this stuff, if you fell on this stuff, man, it was brutal. So we had a premier athlete that was a major league player that we were bringing back after this hamstring strain. Firstly, I didn't agree with the diagnosis. It was too, too much of a bucket kind of diagnosis for me. Grade three and six weeks is up, so he's got to be ready. And I watched our athletic trainer just do a concentric knee extension, concentric knee flexion exercise. So to measure with a handheld ergometer, measure quad strength and hamstring strength and said, yep, it looks like it's about 70% the strength of the quad. I think he's ready. And I was like, whoa, whoa. I said, hang on a minute. And I developed a bit of a relationship with the athlete. I said, can we go outside and just 
test a little bit of this. Like I wanted to see how we would, what his braking system was like on that leg. So he did these drop starts and we did some things and he performed so poorly in that assessment that the athletic trainer got on the phone with the head of medical and said, look, we, he's not ready. He's just not ready. And there's some 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 issue with that. But I couldn't see. I was still using my eyes to guess around his performance and questioning how did that feel how did that feel yeah it's getting really tired really fast um is what we were getting from that so i knew that there was an opportunity to intervene and pull back but i didn't have any measures and we were so limited with technology and and resources at that level having an insole like this that was just consistently aggregating information i mean the best definition i know of fatigue is the inability to produce force right so I don't think it's heart rate. I don't think it is. It's relative across a number of spectrums. We're kind of looking at second and third ordered metric. That inability to produce force is probably the best fatigue metric we have. And that that equation from fatigue to compensation, as you mentioned, to injury is a known pathway. To, so to see those things in mass and prevent that next injury from happening I think is critical. And I think we're going to end up with some markers with some key professional teams here in North America that are going to get really good at understanding that. Yeah. And I mean, you certainly know this from your time at Catapult, but Mm. for me, you know, what makes me excited and what I think about, sure, there's things that we can measure um, down the road and, and, and that's great. If you talk about, you know, having that athlete go out on the field and, and, seeing them run and, and, or move and maybe you want to quantify it. So you're going to use video and you're going to step through it and you're going to put joint angles on it. It's incredibly time consuming. You know, I think for the things that we know we can deliver on from a feedback and metric standpoint, designing a system from, from the ground up, right from the sensor level Mm -hmm. through to the back end that supports the processing of those sessions down to the delivery method to the aggregation of those metrics over time, I want to do all the legwork so that what we're doing is we're shortening that time period down so that it, they don't even have to think about that process. You can have a guy go boom, and you've got all the important pieces of information for you readily available right away. And you can have the confidence that all of those metrics have been, you know, fully validated so that, you can make a decision in the moment and say, yeah, green light, red light. He's ready to go. He's not ready to go. We're going we're gonna to take some time to prepare. And then even better than red light, green light, we can point at where that work needs to be done. Yeah. And so, you know, every day we've just been laying down, you know, massive blocks of concrete for our foundation, right? Like, yeah, yeah. you know, kinetics, we're not, we're not building up from a very narrow place, we've yeah. taken the time as a company to lay an incredible foundation so that mm. we can have incredible confidence in, in the sensor technology and our ability to store and um, process sessions. And I think it's with that proper foundation and our relationships with research institutions and the validation work that we're doing now that we will be able to go up in, in many directions with confidence. Well, Sam, it, it brings us to a close with a really good a, a discussion we could get into for another hour, and that is most technologies, as we know, tell you what you've done. 
there's very few technologies that tell you what to do or to your point, as you just mentioned, what to focus on. So I think the future for runners being held in the hands of yourself, your amazing team that you're putting together that are being liberated with this technology is going to put us to a point of an evolution of running and an evolution of sports performance, an evolution of human movement. I see that as the fundamental baseline for what we do on this podcast, which is the Human Kinesome Project. So, Sam, we can't thank you enough for being here. And personally, I can't thank you enough for being here because it's um, it's liberating for me to understand the safety net I have to walk on when I'm talking to an NBA league office or to the NFL Players Association or to individual athletes or even groups like P3 who are massively excited about this product. I know that I can rest on the values that you hold dear. So thank you. Oh, no. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm very, very happy every day to be working with you as well. So exciting we're gonna have a lot of fun buddy and uh (laughs) it's just starting so this will be great thank you for listening to the human kinesome project podcast the kinesome is starting to take shape but team the game is just beginning 